Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're now deep in our 29th year here together. Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com, or you can go there at your leisure and download podcasts of previous shows. And you can also go to the app SoundCloud and get those same broadcasts without the commercial breaks. And this coming Thursday, after the news is 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. Also, from time to time, my friend Kenny Rommeyer, KLBJ, and I do what we call an evergreen show, where we don't take calls or texts, but I do my best to answer questions that have been, I call them evergreen because they're really important and they're common and they never go away. And so we'll have one of these weeks on evergreen shows. So if you have a topic that you'd like to have us talk about and do my best to answer, email Kenny Rommeyer at, that's Kenny, K-E-N-N-E-Y, Kenny, at 590-KLBJ. It's always a terrific idea to call or text at the beginning of the hour. Give me an ample opportunity to do my best to answer your question. I will take today's calls first, then today's texts, and then secondly, any previous week's texts, and then the ever-hated bloviation. Here is a new text. Hi, Carl. I know that you don't discuss individual securities or specific funds. But I was hoping you could speak in general about the pros and cons of income-generating closed-end funds. Lately, I have been intrigued by the high dividend, some in the 9 to 12% range, of certain closed-end funds, but have not pulled the trigger yet while wondering about any downside outside of the usual involving a risk as set. So for everybody else, closed-end funds have been around Gee, as long as I know, anyway. Uh, and the reason they're called closed end is this. If you buy a traditional mutual fund, what's called in the profession a 40-act fund, from Vanguard or Fidelity or American Funds or T. Rowe Price or whomever, when you buy it, you're going to pay the value of the portfolio at the end of that day divided by the number of shares outstanding, and you're going to pay what's called net asset value. That's the value of the portfolio. By the same token, if you choose to sell your shares, that those shares will be priced at the end of the day, and you will get net asset value. Those funds are always open for new money or open for, for liquidations. A closed-end fund is a lot like an initial public offering of a common stock. The, there's initial public offering, the money is raised, and after the operating costs, or the offering costs, I should say, the portfolio managers then manage the portfolio of stocks and or bonds, and uh, it trades throughout the day. So there's no uh, relationship between the price of the shares that you buy or sell and the underlying net asset value. It may sell at a premium to net asset value because people are willing to bid it above the value of the portfolio to get, uh, say, a big dividend. 
or maybe people are quite negative about the portfolio and it may sell at a discount to net asset value. So those are closed-end funds. Now, to the question. Closed-end funds yielding 9 to 12%. So first thing you want to understand, when you see these outsized yields like this or returns in the form of income, first of all, you want to, you want to have a healthy dose, dose of skepticism. You want to understand the strategy. How is it that they're generating this kind of return? There are at least two common ways in which this can be done. One is to, is to use the portfolio as collateral, borrow money, and buy more shares or more bonds. That's been going on for years in the bond market where you would find, a, say, a municipal bond closed-end fund with, say, really high yield, like 7%. You go, how the heck could that happen when comparable bonds are yielding 3%? What would happen is they'd buy bonds and they'd use that as collateral, go borrow more money, buy more bonds. And as long as what they were getting in the form of coupon income from the bond exceeded what they were paying in short-term interest rates to borrow the money, then there was a spread. And that spread could be added to the normal income from the bonds. And guess what? You have a higher yield. Now, does that work? Of course it does. What are the risks? The risk is a change in interest rates, like we've experienced over the last 12 to 15 months. If you're borrowing money at 1% and buying 3% bonds, that's one thing. But if all of a sudden, more or less all of a sudden, your borrowing costs go to 4% and your bonds are paying your 3%, you're upside down. So there's risk in, if it's levered, there's risk in the funding going higher. That's number one. The second thing, if it's a stock strategy, is it may be an option trading strategy where they're buying stocks and selling options against them. There's uh, been a big move toward that uh, in, in on Wall Street, and it may well be <clears throat> that the dividend yield is being, is being, if you will, goosed by the extra income from selling options. It, that's called covered call writing. And if that's the case, that's considered a moderately conservative strategy because the worst that happens is you buy Procter & Gamble for 42 and you sell a call option at 45 and the stock goes to 46 and you lose the stock because someone exercised the option. So what you want to understand is what the heck is going on to generate this outside yield. The other thing you want to consider is typically these strategies, these higher dividend paying strategies are interest sensitive. So it's possible that the closed end funds that you're looking at may have had lower yields and higher prices a year ago, and they may have come down because they're interest sensitive. Just like when rates go up, bonds go down. When rates go up, it's not uncommon for high dividend paying industries like real estate investment trust to decline. So personally, uh, I've, I've just learned to be somewhere between cautious and skeptical uh, and outright wanting to avoid anything that has a 9 to 12% yield simply because there's got to be some kind of, and I'm not saying it's illegal at all or chicanery at all. I'm just saying it's got to be a strategy that has risks, and I sure as heck want to know what those risks are. Great text. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. We have all of our lines available and no incoming texts. 
Last week, I got a text. Someone had uh, inherited a non-qualifying annuity and wanted to understand what would happen when they cashed it in. And I said, because it was a non-qualifying annuity, which meant that it was not purchased in an IRA or some form of tax-deferred account, that when they liquidated the annuity, all the growth above the original after-tax investment would be taxed as income to the beneficiary. I got a, a, an important and I, a somewhat detailed email from our listener, Ken, who says that in some annuity contracts, not all companies offer what he calls a, the five-year payout. And let me just go through this. The five-year rule requires that the beneficiary withdraws the entire balance of the annuity within five years of the owner's death. With the five-year rule, the beneficiary has several options regarding when to receive the death benefit proceeds. Take all the money out soon after the death of the owner, which is what I answered or assumed would happen, and paid income tax on anything over the original investment. Secondly, take periodic payments at any time during the five-year period, or wait until the fifth year and take all the annuity proceeds at that time. The Internal Revenue Service taxes annuity income to the extent of gains distributed from the contract, and gains are distributed first. In other words, if, if the decedent put in $50,000 and now it's worth $100,000, the first $50,000 you draw out are attributable to the gains and are subject to income tax. Now, if a trust or charity or estate is a beneficiary of a non-qualified deferred annuity, the five-year rule is the only rule they must abide by. Okay, that's terrific. Now, we're off to a great start with some great questions. I'm going to take a break. A perfect time to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here until 5 this afternoon. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Well, it has now once again been a good thing to be a saver. Notice I didn't say investor. For what was seemed like a very long time, if you had your money in a checking or savings account, an interest-bearing account at your bank, or even certificates of deposit, you were not getting much in the way of a return. That has all changed over the last year because of Federal Reserve policy. So now money market funds are very, very attractive. I want to make sure that you understand the distinctions. The money market fund is not a money market account. In fact, in my experience, a money market account is something that you get at a financial institution. A money market fund is a completely different instrument. It's a mutual fund. I'm going to go back to that if I have time. I just got another text, so let me see if I can get this. All right. Here we go. Hmm. Bear with me because I've got to get down to today's text. Okay. Carl, I arranged my Saturdays to be able to listen to your show. Well, great. Thank you. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. On a dividend-paying stock, if a stock pays special dividends in addition to their regularly scheduled dividends, 
does a special dividend require the same reduction in the dividend price in the same manner as a regular dividend? I think it does. We're talking about ex-dividend date. I don't know that for a fact. So let me just explain to everybody else, and I know you'll be disappointed in my answer. But when a company declares a dividend, then on the date that that dividend is payable, that's that right before then it's called ex-dividend date, you needed to own the stock to get that dividend. And then the value of the dividend is subtracted from the price of the stock at the opening on the following day. So if it were a $50 stock and it paid, uh, let's say, $0.50 cents a quarter or $2 a year in dividends, and it was $50 and, then, and it was going to pay $0.50 cents the next morning, the stock would be $49.50. So what this person is asking is, there are special dividends, meaning that their companies have a dividend policy, but they may also at their discretion, for whatever reasons, maybe something extraordinary, they can pay an extra dividend. My common sense tells me that that ought to have the same impact on ex-dividend date. They're still going to declare the dividend. They're going to have a dividend payment date and an ex-date, and I would think it would have the same impact. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Judy, you're on the air. How may I help? Yes, um, we're hearing a lot of ads and a lot of emails and a lot of comments from people like friends are asking, what does this mean? And the ads are saying, get your money out of the bank before um, the 22nd of August, and some say the 23rd or the 26th of August, but nonetheless, uh, they're saying your money won't be there or there's going to be a recall on the dollar, and it's hard for people to understand, and all of us are asking our friends and family these questions of what does that mean. I I wonder if it has something to do with the CBDCs, but I'm going to just listen, and okay. maybe next week I'll call in yeah. again. Sure. Okay. Okay. Thanks okay. For, okay. You bet. Thanks for your call. So uh, in, the, in this world of social media, uh, people without any credentials can say whatever they want. Uh, I can assure you uh, that your money is safe in the bank. Uh, and that the dollars, the, the money is not going to go away. That if you think that through, that would be the end of, of, of the global economy. It would, if, if people couldn't put their trust in, a, in the financial institution, then what are they going to do? There is not enough cash in the bank. If everybody went to their neighborhood bank and said, I want all my money out in cash, it's not there. The bank takes your money, pays you an interest rate, and invests that money, typically by lending it to other people. So this is disturbing to me because it's this fear tactic. There's absolutely no truth to that whatsoever, none whatsoever. So please sleep nights and tell your friends and relatives that that's just baloney and that Carl Stewart said they shouldn't have to worry about it. Thanks for your call. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text that just arrived. 
Carl, what percentage should a church or similar organization expect to be able to draw from an endowment? Great question. Historically, the number has been 5%. Actually, in the case of private foundations, where you set up the foundation, my understanding is that to meet the statute, it's 5%. I would tell you I think that that's high, uh, and you run the risk of doing permanent damage to uh, the endowment. Uh, I think there's a couple of strategies that I would consider if I were in charge of a church's or other organization's endowment. If you think about it as if it were retirement planning, how much money can I take from my savings and investments to supplement my Social Security and or my pension? We used to always say 4%. And perhaps now that interest rates are higher again, we can say 4%. I've been more comfortable with 3%, and the reason is that interest rates were so low, I thought you couldn't get a decent return from the bond portion of your portfolio. That's changing, and I may change along with that. I'm not quite ready to do that yet, but I think 5% is high. Now, one thing you could do, uh, and this goes for people who retire and have uh, money invested as well as perhaps your church endowment, is you can say, all right, let's set up a policy. Let's take 4% from the previous year-ending value, and let's update that every quarter or every year so that if we have a bad year like last year, then we don't take as much out because the portfolio has declined. You can even smooth that out by, say, taking three or four years so that you're not starving the institution. But what you want to try to avoid is taking substantial uh, substantial withdrawals during substantial drawdowns like last year when the S&P 500 was down 18%, the NASDAQ 32 or 33, and the Bloomberg Ag about 13 or 14%. If you're taking a larger withdrawal, now you're having to get a really better return on the way back to get back to where you possibly were. So if, if I were in your shoes, let's say at your church, and they're asking your advice, if it's properly invested, I'm not talking about sitting in cash now or sitting in CDs, because when rates go down, and they will, so will the returns on that. I'm assuming that it's a traditional endowment-type portfolio with stocks and bonds, perhaps some other financial assets, I'd be comfortable with 4%. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I think we got another text here. Ah, Carl, in 2001, I inherited shares of advanced micro devices and got certificates for it. Well, there you go. Hard to get those. When I tried to sell it recently, I was told the shares had been sent to unclaimed money in Tennessee for inactivity. Well, if you got the certificates and they're in your name, then I don't know what would have been unclaimed money. I know that that I'm familiar that each state has this situation where if money is sitting in an account and it's unclaimed after a period of time, it goes to the state. But if you actually had stock certificates, 
I, I don't know what you would have lost, perhaps dividends if advanced micro devices paid dividends, but this doesn't sound right. Uh, you say I tried to sell it, and it was the sold, told the shares had been sent. So if you received the shares and they were not re-registered in your name, then that's probably what happened. But if the shares were, if you inherited them and you had them registered in your name, then that shouldn't have happened. If you didn't have them registered in your name, you just put the, sh- you had certificates in the name of the decedent and you just stuck them in the, uh, in, in, in the drawer, yes, then I think you have a real problem. Uh, and frankly, anymore, we just don't see, st- we don't see stock certificates. We haven't seen bond certificates in years and we don't see stock certificates. So I think, I think you're gonna have to probably get an expert on this uh, you might start with a CPA, see if she's had any dealings with this. Uh, and, of course, you can go to Tennessee, explain your situation, and basically see if there's anything you can do. I'm sorry this has occurred. Well, we're at the bottom of the hour. So if you've been thinking of calling or texting, now would be a perfect time. 512-836-0590. Stick around for the second half of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here for another half hour. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience, download previous shows, and you can go to the free app SoundCloud and do the same thing. And then this Thursday after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. Also, if you have some questions for an upcoming Evergreen broadcast with my friend Kenny Rahmeyer at the station, and send them to Kenny, K-E-N-N-Y, I said E-Y earlier, K-E-N-N-Y at 590-K-L-B-J.com. One more time, 512-836-0590. Here's a text that just came in. Hi, Carl. I think I know what the last lady caller was referring to regarding money and it's going away. There are rumors about government starting up a digital currency, and at some point, telling users, telling us we must switch it and turn in paper currency. Apparently, Russia, China, and a few other countries will turn on their digital currency on August the 22nd. So that's the basis of a few schemes and worries. Some believe it will diminish the value of the U.S. dollar and possible actions by our government is being guessed. Please comment on this. Thanks so much. Well, I haven't read anything in the financial press, in Barron's Magazine or in the Wall Street Journal about this. I have read over the years that, it, that if you go to China, you'd be surprised how digitally, uh, shall we say, sophisticated things are there. People go to the market and buy fresh fruit or whatever the case is and just use their phone. They don't use cash very much. Uh, I would tell you uh, that the Russians just recently, this past week, sharply increased uh, interest rates, their central bank did, 
in an attempt, according to the Wall Street Journal, to give some support to the ruble, which has been falling, and and that's bad for the Russian government. So uh, the odds that they're going to try to go digital seems seems to me out highly unlikely. The other thing is, if you think this through, if uh, China did that and Russia did that, it'd be just terrific for the dollar because people would want to go someplace where they would think that manipulation couldn't happen. So will we have digital currency some point in the future? Probably. But we have, I don't know how many millions of people that are, that are basically in the cash economy, uh, perhaps legally, perhaps illegally, but they operate on a cash basis. And converting that to complete digital is going to be a remarkably complex and difficult thing to happen. So no, that's not going to happen. Uh, what they do, and they got problems in China. If you've been reading the press, uh, in terms of unemployment, uh, youth unemployment, uh, problems in their property sector, but they're not in a position to wipe out the currency. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text five one two. 836-0590. So unless I get a call or a text, let me go back and start over again with money market funds. For a long time, this is not a topic I would share with you because, frankly, you couldn't make any money in money market funds. But money market funds are mutual funds, but they don't invest in stocks and they don't invest in longer-term bonds. They invest in securities of one year or less and their attempt is to keep the net asset value. If you were listening to the earlier part of the broadcast, I talked about net asset value, to keep the net asset value at a dollar a share. They fall into three categories. They're prime, government, and treasury. The prime funds can buy, of course, treasuries if they choose, but they also can buy issuers, corporate issuers. So let's suppose a high-grade corporate issuer, let's say somebody like uh, Oh, I used Procter & Gamble earlier. Let's say Coca-Cola wants to borrow money for 90 days. They go out into the market and say, we're Coca-Cola. We're a high-grade credit. You know we're going to pay the money back. We want to borrow for 90 days. And the money market funds bid on that. They take that promise to pay, which is a security. They put it in the money market fund. And 90 days later, they get their money back plus the accrued interest. So those are prime. The government ones can buy U.S. Treasuries, obviously shorter term, a year or less, so those would be bills. But they also can buy government agencies. The primary ones are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I happen to be very comfortable with those, personally. And then the Treasury ones only buy Treasury securities. These are direct obligations, not government-sponsored enterprises, but direct obligations of the federal government. Now, in theory, and I suspect I haven't checked in the last week or two, in reality, the yields ought to be declining in that order. The prime ought to pay slightly more, the government ought to pay slightly less, and the Treasury slightly less. I do know the government's paying over 5%. So those are money market funds. A money market account is at a financial institution, and that institution determines how much they're going to pay you so that they can retain the amount of deposits that they want. Now, I've read, of course, that there, these, are, these yields are coming up at banks, for example, because we're seeing, I believe I read, trillions of dollars, something like $2 trillion have moved into money market funds as people realize the first time in a long time they can get 5%. 
Which leads me to my second component about this. But let me remind you, if you're thinking of calling or texting, 512-836-0590. So now that we have what I would call attractive and competitive yields on money market funds and certificates of deposit, I just, I, I want to, and I'll probably, this is a topic that I'll come back to again and again, because I saw this way back when. I've been involved in this enterprise, if you will, for 45 years, and if you're an older listener, you can remember when interest rates were extremely high. And they, rates are very attractive now. Even after inflation, you're getting a real return. But my experience is that will not last. So I always make a distinction between savers and investors. And savers are people who want no risk to their money, no nominal risk. They're willing to take the risk of declining purchasing power, which they've suffered through for several years, but they're not willing to look at a statement and see that their $10,000 is worth $9,726.12. And so they're going to stay and, and be not indifferent to the yield, but that's going to be a very secondary consideration. That's fine. Investors are people who want to see their money grow in value over time. Now, there's two key components of that comment. The first one is grow, and the second one's over time. Because then you're going to be investing in assets that have long, either have longer maturities, like bonds, or don't have maturities, like investment real estate and common stocks. There's a reason that if you work for the federal government and retire, the employee's retirement system doesn't put all their money in short-term CDs or the teacher's retirement system or the University of Texas Investment Management Company because it would not accomplish their objectives. So do not get caught in this wonderful period of short yields, short-term yields, and put your money there thinking you're making an investment or perhaps even more dangerously, I'm going to enjoy this 5%, and at some point I'm going to get back into the stock market. That's called market timing. I can assure you, based on all the ways in which I've learned to lose money, that's a lousy idea. I couldn't have told you at the end of 2021, which had been an excellent year for equities, that we were going to have a terrible year in 2022. I couldn't have told you that the traditional 60% stock fund, 40 or stock 40% bond would have the worst year in 40 years. Nobody, I sure didn't see that coming, and I don't think anybody else did, nor the fact that we've had a good year this year for stocks. So if you're planning for your future, for your children's education, for your own financial independence and retirement, do not get caught up in the beauty of the short term because eventually rates are going to come down. The Federal Reserve is absolutely committed to, to reducing inflation. And they're prepared, according to Chairman Powell, if they have to have some pain, which is a way of saying a recession, they're going to do that because they want to get inflation down to 2%. Now, whether they can do that or not is anybody's guess. But if and when inflation starts to come down, either because the economy has slowed or it's come down simply because we get the so-called soft landing, then the Fed's going to bring rates down. And if you're sitting in short-term CDs or you're sitting in short treasuries or you're in a money market fund, guess what's going to happen to your yield? So, so really think about the purpose of your capital. If you've got cash and it's there for an emergency, 
Short-term rates are wonderful. Congratulations. If you have a liability, you've got that tuition payment to be paid after the first of the year. Perfect. Keep it in the money market fund. But if it's your 401k and you have a money market fund in there and you're 60 years old, you've got a long time to invest. Don't be putting it in the money market fund, in my opinion. Well, we're down to our last quarter hour, and I'm here busy bloviating. A good chance for you now to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon for another 13 minutes. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. I did hear from our listener, Ken, we were on the uh, person who inherited the advanced micro devices stock. He said, Carl, if that stock was not re-registered in his name or her name, he will probably need a lawyer to help him establish airship to reopen the estate or whatever to establish that he is in fact he in fact inherited it and may cost more than the shares are worth i'm not surprised if they were re-registered in his name all he has to do is open a brokerage account sign the certificates over to the account i completely agree you're listening to money talk 512-836-0590 a text hi again carl i looked up that concept I texted a few moments ago, please look at BRICS, acronym for countries planning a separate currency scheme, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It's not a rumor, though I don't know the consequences. We should think about it. Well, it may not be a rumor, but it also makes no sense because those countries have extremely different perspectives, different goals, objectives. I mean, the Chinese currency is controlled. I mean, the reason people don't, central banks don't keep Chinese currency is because it's not a tradable currency. The Chinese keep U.S. treasuries. The largest holder of U.S. treasuries is the, is the Japanese. So uh, I just, I'm sorry, I, this is below the radar or not on the radar or whatever. Now, do people want to have digital currencies? Yeah. I mean, of course, that makes sense. But the idea that countries that basically hate each other, like the Indians and the Chinese, are going to go together and do something together just doesn't make any sense. And the Russians are in no position whatsoever, given what's going on with their economy and the war. So it may, the stories may be out there, but they're not going to go together and do a currency, in my view. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I was talking about being an investor. I did note that the 10-year Treasury closed or at least traded at 4.25% this past week. That is the highest it's been, think about this, in 16 years, 2007. So if you think fixed income belongs in your portfolio, now you have something to think about. There's been a strategy for many years in bond investing called a barbell where you put money in a a shorter-term bond fund, for example. You could buy individual bonds if you have plenty of capital. And then in longer term, 
Now, extreme barbell would be have something in, say, two-year treasuries and 30-year treasuries. But given where we are in Fed policy, I've been reading about combining a shorter-term bond fund with, say, an intermediate-term bond fund. And I was looking at some data before I came on this afternoon. And if you get up, and the bottom line is, looking back over long periods of time, you hear the rustling of paper as I look at this, look at this chart. And a blend of short and intermediate has delivered lower volatility and higher risk-adjusted returns. So if you think about it, right now, I was looking, the Bloomberg, bonds have given back a lot of their gains this year. The Bloomberg Ag year-to-date is up 0.36%. The biggest bond fund, Vanguard Total Bond, is up 0.38%. The uh, TIPS, the uh, iShares TIP, is up 037 now, the shorter-term tip, zero to five years, 1.83. But then you go and look at short-term bond funds, one that I happen to follow. It's up 3.71. What's going on? Well, this is this so-called inverted yield curve where shorter-term securities are paying more than longer-term securities. So you go ahead and you, and you get an investment-grade intermediate-term bond fund, and you get the short fund. Now, if what happens this year happens – you're making a better return in the short term. You may even have a 1% loss or a 1.5% loss in your net asset value in the intermediate term bond fund. But then guess what happens? Eventually, rates go back down. Now, you're going to have lower returns in the short term bond fund and better returns in the intermediate because as rates come down, the value of that will grow will go up. So that's an investment strategy rather than say sitting in cash. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I was looking. If you're a regular listener, you know I'm a big fan in the stock market of putting money in passive index funds because they're cheap, they're tax efficient. And then if you are interested in actively managed funds, as you probably have heard me say, what I've learned over the last 45 years is that you can find managers who do a really good job when uh, we're in a bull market and, and really stink it up in bear markets. Or you can find those that are below average in good markets but tend to outperform by not going down as much. And when you're looking at active management, you have to look at how the returns were obtained. So uh, let's just take a mistake that I luckily just made in my own portfolio and for my family. I had a chance to go to New York and visit with the portfolio manager, and she ran a small cap focus fund. What the heck does that mean? It meant that she didn't have 100 or 200 names in her stock portfolio. She had 30 or 40 names, and she had very strong criteria. These companies were small, but they had to have clean balance sheets. Uh, they may or may not have been profitable, but they didn't have debt or a lot of debt. Uh, and she had spectacular returns, was was celebrated in the Wall Street Journal and Barron's Magazine as being one of the top two or three return in whatever year it was. And uh, I thought, well, gosh, this sounds really interesting. And uh, I decided to buy a bit of it. Uh, and then, uh, guess what? It, she really fell off a cliff. And in analyzing the mistake I made, was I didn't look at 
her longer term, how did she do in down markets versus up markets? And secondly, what was it that was causing her outsized returns? And it was because her portfolio was heavily focused on biotechnology companies. They met her selection criteria. They had a potential rapid growth. They had clean balance sheets. Typically, they had venture capital funding. And, you know, they had exciting new drugs that they were in tests on. And the market loved it. Investors loved it and drove them to very high valuations. But I've learned the stock market's a bit like a, a lighthouse, and you're out in the ocean trying to avoid the rocks on the shore as you come ashore. And when the lighthouse is on you, you can see exactly where you're going. But then it can shift to go someplace else, and now you're in the dark again. This is a reason why I don't care for sector funds that only buy healthcare stocks or only energy stocks or only real estate stocks or whatever the case is, not because they're bad in and of themselves, but they can go through really long periods of poor performance. And I believe I've owned these funds maybe four years. I still don't have a gain in it, and we've been through some good times because her analysis of the companies was valid, but the market didn't like and doesn't like what she owns. And so that was an important lesson to me. On the other hand, I have a small cap value fund that I like, and it went, tends to win when everybody else does badly. And so when we had a good year in 2021, it dropped to 92nd and 100's the worst in its Morningstar category. And then we had a bad year last year. It rose to 23, top quartile. And now we're having a good year this year, and it's in the 60th. Another international fund that I own was in a good year, 2021, was right at the bottom of the barrel in 90th. And then when we had a bad year last year, it skyrocketed to number three. And then this year, it's back to number 90. So I think you see what I'm saying here is if you're going to go for active management, you just can't look at the three, five, and 10-year returns because you don't know how those returns were obtained. I learned years ago, to, if you're comparing two funds, let's say you're looking at two large cap value, actively managed large cap value funds. Get their calendar year returns for as long as you can. Typically, you can go to Morningstar and get them for probably 10 years. And say, take $1,000 and say, how did what happened to that $1,000? So the first year, one was up 10%. Now it's $1,100. The other was up 5%. It's $1,050. Then they were down. Then they were up. Then they were down. And what you will find is, over that time period, even though they could have very, very similar 10-year returns, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have that one's better than the other. You have to go through and see, what was my experience in owning that? Here comes my last text of the day. I, ha what, I have had similar experiences with inherited mineral property and believe I had to get a certificate copy of the probated will from the county where the deceased resided and send it to the county where the property is located. I would ask the state of Tennessee what they said they what they say they needed before t going to a lawyer. You know that sounds like terrific advice. So get a certificate copy of the probated will from the county where the deceased resided and send it to the county where the property is located. That's terrific advice. Well, 
We run out of time. I bloviated away. I hope it was interesting and enjoyable and hope you learned something. I want to thank Garrett for doing a wonderful job. I want to thank you for listening and remind you that next Saturday after the news at 4, be sure and tune in to Money Talk.